You're listening to TWN Champions, episode 23. Champions, arise! Welcome to the Champions Countdown Podcast, where we summon heroes from across space and time to populate our intergalactic museum or something like that. This is episode number 23. I'm Will, and with me is a fearsome creature who says villagers taste like peanut brittle. It's Rebecca! You dare summon me? Uh, Yes, every week. (laughs) (laughs) I love peanut brittle. It's that time of year. It's a time of year where you get to eat peanut brittle. I think the brittleness probably comes from the armor of uh, people. That yeah, you that's eat. the crunch. That's yeah. where you get the crunch, and the like. The peanut is like their little heads. Yeah, or brains. Yeah, their little brains, little yeah. peanut. Or maybe belt buckles is also a little brittle. Maybe yeah, but then they're like they're sweetened by their blood. Yeah, or wallet chains. Wallet yeah. chains would be brittle. Yeah, I don't know where you're eating people. <laughs> <laughs> you're you got a lot of activity in the, in the two thousands. Yeah. <laughs> A Power Man 5000 concert. Uh, (laughs) I'm at Warp Tour 99. Uh, Why would a dragon attack Warp Tour? I don't know. (laughs) Let's fast forward to the future a little bit till we hit now. And I'm going to ask you what you've been up to, what you've been eating. (laughs) Not people. That's for sure. Although I'm not sure. That's right. (laughs) Because we have switched to a futuristic food source you know what this sounds like the beginning of like a plug if you have a sponsor which we most definitely don't closest we've ever come to that yeah i mean to saying that like like we clear no this is just me talking but uh in the tradition of soylent green as people and our countdown about food a couple of weeks ago we started eating huel hot and savory it's a product i saw advertised on instagram guys this is not sponsored we are not we are nobody yeah nobody, i know and, I, and just to prove it i'll say it tastes okay <laughs> yeah right that's a, like, i want to be very honest about huel you know where we're always complaining like we're like okay i don't want to think about food except for like maybe one day a week and then i'll think about nothing but food but then like it's concentrated one day a week right mostly you don't want to think about food because you're like i'm busy okay and then that's why you eat Huel. Yeah, it's like it's like this food unit that uh, has the perfect amount of nutrients. You don't have to think about it. You can free up your brain, so you only have to think about dinner. Because we eat it for lunch. Yeah. It looks like like fish food or like pet food to me. Like pet food for humans. It even comes in that kind of bag. Like it a does. fish food bag. It's in, and, and it's the name is a portmanteau, I think, of human fuel uh-huh. to be cute but it's mostly really a portmanteau for human gruel because <laughs> right. it's just it's like future gruel and I, I think of it as like my future food like if if uh, a monster had adopted you as a pet they would like buy that and be like this is what a man eats yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> you get it from the pet store <laughs> or like if you lived on a futuristic mining colony and like they had figured out that they can't oppress their workers too much. They're like, we must feed you a nutritionally complete source of calories. And so it would be Huel. And that's what you get to eat on your space colony. I don't know. I like it. I do too. Sound I like too. I, it's pretty good. It doesn't sound like I do, but I do. It doesn't have the glamour of eating people, though. 
Well, Rebecca, what are we talking about today? <laughs> well, we're talking about eating people an awful lot. But that's because we're talking about dragons. So on today's show, we're counting down our personal favorite takes on the dragon archetype. I have four. Will has four. It's a top eight. Not all dragons eat people. I'm just like, they have before, though. Someone, I mean, they, you know. Well, tell us how you define dragons. Like, so for purposes of our show, okay, we're talking about Western lore dragons mm-hmm. that have been around for a very long time. And I don't know if we're ready to get into that yet. I think so. I think. I was, I th- you know, like, so this is like a lizardy creature, but it's big. Mm-hmm. Sometimes snake like. Sometimes snake like. Mm-hmm. Usually scaly. Mm-hmm. It often lives alone. Can fly, probably. Can maybe breathe fire. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the agreed upon traits of what constitutes a dragon in lore has not, they, they're not necessarily those things. Uh-huh. It's just kind of what we think about. But yeah, let's talk about the very long history of dragons. Well, I thought this was really neat to me because cultures started talking about dragons a very long time ago and had no reason to believe that they weren't real. Uh, the earliest appearance I could find was Herodotus, the father of history. Uh, <laughs> he visited Judea in 450 BC and heard rumors of flying reptiles, and he observed some dragon-like bones. And from what I read, uh, scholars believe early cultures across the world had beliefs in dragons from very early times because of dinosaur fossils. Yes, that's like that's what I was seeing too. That's like- really neat to me. Like, I know in, like, in our mythology, dragons don't mean the same everywhere. And um, I was reading that the Eastern dragon, like, the one that's more often found found in um, ancient Chinese lore, Mm -hmm. those were really more associated with, I don't know, life and vitality and sort of, like, the fecundity of the earth. Mm -hmm. And they were really more of, like, a revered kind of creature. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think they were speculating that the preponderance of dinosaur fossils was kind of like making them seem more like a real creature, I mm-hmm. think, in, in Eastern lore than in Western lore. But could you imagine how cool that, that would be when you saw those? I mean, these things were real. I mean, th- I mean yeah, this like, creature happened. You would definitely, yeah, you definitely have some beliefs there that it was a real thing. I mean, and some of that makes it into the Bible a little bit, like a, in, in some of the Apocrypha, there's a dragon in there. And then like in Revelation, we have dragons. Yeah, uh, the uh, and a lot of people also associate in the book of Job, the Leviathan, uh-huh. um, with like a, an, as being like an early dragon story because it, it was like a, a sea dragon and also sort of represented a lot of those things that that early, you know, like this big unconquerable foe, essentially. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we, so we, we got dragons going way back. I, I thought this was pretty interesting. Um, was we were talking about uh, vampires not too long ago, and I happened to remember <laughs> and every day. <laughs> uh, you know, Dracula was called the dragon, and that's because his name comes from his father, who was in the Order of the Dragon, which was a chivalric order for select nobility in the 1400s to defend Christianity from its enemies, basically to fight the non-Christian Ottoman Empire. But in modern Romanian. Uh, uh, Dracula's name means son of the devil. So there's a lot of like religious good and evil interplay there with him, which I thought was pretty interesting. I do love knowing and thinking about the heavy metal parts of the Bible and Christianity. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, just dragons, we're, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> like, Dracula, he was once a very good man.
Did you have some more like uh, examples of like the important dragons from literature? So like we, you know, we're talking old, and we're also talking Western and Eastern. So we've talked about you know the Greeks had them, uh, the Bible had them, and I, mean, I don't know if we said too like the Western ones are the ones we think more of like the. British dragons, where they're like the kind of um, girthy with wings and breathe fire and yeah. get the princess and stuff. And the eastern ones are the more uh, serpent-like ones. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, that that is kind of a, a big. And they're you sometimes flightless or, or water and air type. Yeah, they are typical. Or I, I don't. I am definitely not an expert, but it does seem to be that they're more like or, the or water wingless. Yeah, wingless or water-based. Mm-hmm. And then you know, e- even bridging the gap between the western and eastern ancient civilizations please don't fall asleep we're not in ninth grade history you're safe you're an adult you can fast forward but i'm going to say the words ancient mesopotamia <laughs> to you but just bear with me it's okay it's okay well, that's where you get all the stuff like the sumerian gods that <laughs> yes. uh, that ray talks about in ghostbusters and i mean so you know they had dragon stories because um, there is a dragon in the epic of gilgamesh uh-huh. so hashtag my 2000 bce kids will remember hashtag nostalgia what um and then you know, fast forward many years, and we get a dragon at the end of Beowulf, uh-huh. the old English epic. So this is where we really start to see dragons take shape in the way that we're going to be referring to them probably in this countdown, right? If I remember right, too, about Beowulf, like, this is a good example of the dragon as, like, the destroyer or, like, the insurmountable odds. You see that show up in a, in a lot, of, lot of stories where they're just, like, they represent, like, the tide of history or, like, inevitability, and you have to fight them anyway, Kind of like in Revelation or something. Yeah, yeah. So this is a really important sticking point, I think, for the countdown is that, in in my eyes, a dragon's got to represent something big, mm-hmm. right? And then whether it's like, uh, I, I do think it was in the, the dragon at the end of Beowulf, like you said, it's supposed to be um, even the inevitability of death. Or like you said, the tide of history, but it represents some kind of huge inevitability. They've also, at various points, you know, represented maybe even things just like greed or the darker side of humanity or our darker impulses. And according to Joseph Campbell, um, represents the ego uh-huh. or our self-limiting beliefs. So okay. like whenever a dragon shows up, it's big. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is not just like a piddly little thing. Don't it's put like, a dragon. Dra- dragons are like a test for humanity. Yeah, exactly. And that's how they've always been deployed, okay. I think, in Western lore. In these stories. Yeah, and, and so our relationships with dragons have changed, of course, throughout time and throughout the kinds of stories that we tell. But it's always something big, I think. Mm-hmm. Or I think it should be. We're going to get into that uh-huh. about what I feel like is a good use <laughs> of a dragon and what I feel like is tacky. Same. That's so funny uh, the, that you would pick out uh, the, some of the similar things to talk about because I that, that was a strain uh, that I, I saw too when I was going through mine. And then I, and I think by the time, of course, we really get to... It's, it's always... Tolkien, like who's uh, who's always the guy that we're like, okay, when we think of Smaug, is that how you say it? That's the kind of dragon that we're all thinking uh-huh. of when we think of dragons. So it's like the he's got a hoard of gold, he's rude, he attacks people. Mm-hmm. We have he, a little banter with him, and then it gets real. Exactly, exactly, exactly. That's kind of like our, I think our our code solidifier for the purposes right. of our of our countdown. So, okay, anything else about dragons? I was just going to say to bring us to modern times, I think we're starting to see more stories about humans and dragons coexisting and sharing wisdom just because we have to uh, keep rethinking the way we think about them. But other than that, I think that pretty well captures it. So with that in mind, do you want to give us your first pick? Number eight. You cannot prevail against me. 
All right, at number eight, I'm gonna give you two sides of a coin pick. But I, yeah, I picked one, but it's it's a two it's a two sides of the coin dragon pick. Okay. And that is Alduin and Parthenax, Elder Scrolls Skyrim. Cool. Okay. okay these are our dragons. Okay. All right. I was gonna ask you uh, about Parthenax if you didn't mention him. So. Okay. So like I have to mention him, but my pick is technically Alduin. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna explain why. All right. Alduin is the main antagonist of the Elder Scrolls Skyrim, and it's been about 10 years since that's come out. Mm-hmm. So if, if, in case you don't remember, I'm going to remind you of the, the gist of the Elder Scrolls Skyrim is that you learn that your player character has like dragon ancestry and therefore you can absorb the souls of dragons mm-hmm. and you can learn how to perform dragon shouts against your enemies. Uh-huh. So you can fight dragons and other people in the world can't. And you're cool, and you can also be friends with dragons. Okay, <laughs> it's not a. It, it, I do love video games where like they uh, spend a lot of time hyping you up. Like you go see the elders, like yeah, yeah. What else about me? Yeah, not the best. <laughs> and I'm the first one. I'm the chosen and one. I'm the yeah. First. What else? And How, I'm the dragonborn. Yeah. I'm the coolest. I'm, I'm the only what? one who can do it. And you what? haven't seen anybody in a long time that can do it. And what was the prophecy again? Yeah. So like <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. Okay, but it's but it's kind of fun. All right. So Alduin is. An ancient, ancient dragon, and without getting into the Elder Scrolls lore, which is a lot, I will basically say that he was sort of a world-ender, world-creator archetype. Mm-hmm. Okay, kind of kind of a dude. But an ancient, ancient dragon who has now decided that it'd be a good time to start resurrecting dead dragons and have a dragon army and fight people. Uh-huh. All right. Now, he's got a brother, Parthenix. He's probably the dragon that you remember. Because the story makes you love Perthenex. Like, uh, he's like your dragon advisor. Uh-huh. And you most definitely, if you played Skyrim, remember this part of the main quest where you have to go all the way up a mountain and you have just learned this dragon shout called Clear Skies and there's all this wind and you got to just keep going up and up and up and up and, and you can fall off the mountain. Don't. Um, and there's frost trolls. You got to go all the way up there to find the leader of the Greybeards. And you can't cheat and just sort of like hop up the crags. Yeah, and you can't hop up the crags. Okay. You got to play the stupid quest okay. to get all the way up to the top. And it's so annoying. But then once you do it once, you can fast travel back there. And your friend you meet is Parthenex. And he's the leader of the Greybeards, but he's a dragon. And so that's his whole zhuzh, is that he was Alduin's brother. And he was like, brother, maybe we shouldn't just wage war on the humans and kill them all the time. Maybe uh-huh. that's evil. And Alduin's like, screw you. Like, I'll do what I want. I'm a dragon. And so in the story, you befriend Parthenex. He advises you. And as it turns out, he's the one who taught humans how to use dragon shouts. Okay. okay. All right. So he's the one the story makes you love. And I do love him, but I feel that Alduin is the better dragon. And let me tell you why. So first of all, can we just agree that a dragon resurrecting dragon bones to make a dragon army is awesome. <laughs> that's a, that's pretty good for your dragon resume. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. That's pretty cool. So like, well, we're looking at the two candidates. One of them advised Greybeards. <laughs> right. One, one of them's resurrecting a dragon army. He seems more proactive. he's got attitude like what do you want a t-shirt of you know like which great mural would you like to see depicted and so i think alduin is a better example of like true dragon nature Mm -hmm. because the game does a lot of moralizing about like it just assumes that it's wrong to kill humans but maybe it's not 
Who says humans are so... You know what I mean? If you were a dragon, why would you care? I mean, just... Anyway, so I think Alduin is actually a better and cooler character. Uh-huh. Even though, of course, Parth- Parthenax is, is the one who... Uh, I, I don't know. He's your friend, and he makes this very, very poetic point um, in the story that uh, isn't it better if you're born evil to become good through great effort rather uh-huh. than just being born good and it comes to you effortlessly? Ah, yeah. Right? That is more interesting. No day goes by where I am not tempted to return to my inborn nature. What is better, to be born good or to overcome your evil nature through great effort. And it's interesting. It's very nice, but I still like the bad dragon. Uh, I don't think about everything in terms of Star Trek, but you know what this reminds me of? This reminds (laughs) me of the debate about whether Worf is a good Klingon. Um, He's sort of like the Parthenax of Klingons a little bit. Um, He doesn't do anything you're supposed to do according to Klingon code because he's a good Starfleet officer, but the Klingons are very Klingon. And so his story means a lot more because he's trying to he's trying to navigate different yeah. sets of values exactly and, and and not just assume that the values that are handed to you are the correct ones mm-hmm. and to take values that make sense to you as a person which mm-hmm. is lovely I, I get it right mm-hmm. i just don't think we should automatically assume that the klingons are terrible just because we don't understand their ways right i feel that discovery d- does a better job with the klingons with uh-huh. the exception of Anything to do with Ash, don't ask. <laughs> right. But I think Discovery does a really good job with Klingon culture, I do, too. Culture, I do, the Torchbearer stuff. I like that a lot. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I do like that. I just want to wrap this pick up by saying this is a really important discovery that I've made while doing research for this episode. It's that I figured out that I don't really like stories about humans having dominion over dragons. Uh-huh. Because, like, I don't like it. I feel that a dragon really always should represent something either, like, unconquerable about life or something very challenging. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's kind of dumb storytelling. It's like you were just saying when you go up to the graybeard, you're like, tell me more about myself. Tell me how great I am. It's like, oh, so my guy, uh, he can tame dragons and he can ride dragons and he can do magic in their language. And then also he's six foot three and he's the president and he's a billionaire and he's a movie star. Oh, I get it. And like, I don't say this just categorically across the board, but I do tend to look askance on stories that are finding cheap ways to give your character power. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. So even though it's fun game, I put plenty of hours into it. Skyrim is inferior to say Morrowind because that, you know, like a dragon is someone that again, it should represent something difficult. I, I, I know what you're saying. And you know what this makes me think, think about, I feel like, I can get behind that because dragons represent magic in the world. And what is that story? If you're conquering dragons, you're ruining like all the mystery and the strangeness and magnificence that's still out there. How is that an interesting story? Like we made the world boring. We ruined, we ruined the mystery. Exactly. Cause now anybody can follow a tutorial and it's like, look at me. I'm the dragon board. Exactly. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. come on. So anyway, Alduin, I like him. (laughs) Number seven. When you wake up with a fire in your belly and 
your breath feels charred when you yawn and your cave is covered in cobwebs and suddenly a hundred years are gone when it seems so my first pick has a problem that we can all relate to now that most of us are working from home he's a dragon that overslept and woke up in 1992 <laughs> to star in his own sitcom Didn't we all this is Scorch, the puppet dragon voiced by the ventriloquist Ron Lucas. Oh, wow. This is a deep cut. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you remembered this one. This is a deep, this is a deep dragon cut right here. I, I think this one is really interesting. I want to I I talk about, I'm, I'm building to something here. This isn't just a, do you remember this? It, the show only had nine episodes. <laughs> Six were unaired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Six aired, three were not. So oh, I just love. They're just like, should like, we no. put? Should we put this on TV? Like, better not. But I, I mean, it sounds sad, but it got a major push, and this character was pretty popular at the time. And like, this act was showing up on Letterman and everything. And like, Scorch was hot. He was hot. It's like a Gabo from The Simpsons. You know, like, Scorch, it's like, <laughs> it's what like is that? Gabbo. Some guy named Gabo. Um, <laughs> I, that is actually one of my favorite things in the world is the Gabo thing from The Simpsons. This is just a this is just an aside. I'm sorry, everyone, but I have to say it's one of my favorite quotes from The Simpsons that we use all the time, like in in our household. Um, but when they've hyped up Gabo to this ridiculous degree, and then Gabo finally appears on TV. Uh, right before they they turn it on, it's just like, okay, I was gonna watch that Gabo, and and Homer says he'll tell us what to do, <laughs> like about Gabo. Like I think he's such a rube. Yes, he'll tell us what to do. I say that all the time about everything. Like we said that about when we got the new refrigerator. Like he'll tell us yeah. what to do. Like just whenever you pin all your stupid hopes on something completely ridiculous and inappropriate, and I just feel that that's one of the best things in the world to be able to describe to people. Like he'll tell us what to do. But anyway, Scorch, he'll tell us what to do. Well, similarly, Scorch was a very popular puppet. If you don't remember what he looks like or weren't around for then, he's a very cute dragon with downturned floppy ears, a mohawk, and a little horn on his nose. And he was part of this comedy routine with the ventriloquist Ron Lucas. It was much better than you think when you're hearing ventriloquism act. It's not as bad as you think. Um, it was almost, when I was watching the clips, he had good timing. It was almost like a live reading of a cartoon where there's like a dragon character and a straight man. And they talked about things like Scorch finding out that he might be a girl dragon um, or that he find, he discovers that he's been naked all his life. And uh <laughs> And, and then I saw one where he was doing, like, some kids show, and he kept talking about all the protein in the audience. Like, not bad. Yeah, that's cute. That's okay. So, so Scorch is the talk of the town, and they decide to give Ron Lucas a sitcom for the character. Alf had just wrapped up. Um, yeah, this, was, this seemed like an unfailable idea. Yeah, it was right before Dinosaurs. It seemed like the right time. And so the premise is, and this, was, this is getting to the interesting part, uh, it was an okay idea for the pilot, uh, He's a small 1,300-year-old dragon who wakes up from a 100-year nap in 1992, and he gets struck by lightning and lands on the house of this weatherman named Brian and his young daughter, Jessica, and only they know he's a real dragon. And the show is... <laughs> and so all the neighbors just are told, this is our... He's a puppet. He's a puppet. And he's a, he's a puppet that's part of the weatherman's shtick. Oh, on, on that's a clever. Uh, and the show was okay. The landlady's pretty funny. Um... But here's here's the here's the part I want to get to. It's really strange to watch because the theme song 
sets up something really special that the sitcom just can't deliver. You can see where it was all in their head, but the sitcom medium was the only thing available to them and it just wasn't going to work. Um, But there's something really special about that theme song. It's got this like swingy Tom Waits, Randy Newman, country-ish kind of thing where it just really tugs on your heartstrings. And I'll read you some of the lyrics, okay? Okay. I think it'd be- I'm going to think of them like Randy Newman. Okay. Uh, when you wake up with fire in your belly and your breath feels charred when you yawn and your cave is covered in cobwebs and suddenly... when you yawn. And suddenly a hundred years are gone. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, when it seems as if your surroundings have all been tossed and twirled, remember things happen at the right time and you've got all the time in the world. Yes, you got very lovely isn't it yeah. uh and the whole things about how it's okay scorch that you're not in your own time and you can figure it out um and it's the only time you get to see a complete fantasy background because they do it like dinosaurs where he's waking up and he's walking slowly out of his cave and what is this world <laughs> and um it's just very moving in a very strange way it should have been like dinosaurs but instead they had to drop him in a um, multicam living room. Yeah, that is that is sad. That's just a yeah. You can't write a sitcom script that that's that existential. Yeah, <laughs> it, but it's really it's re, it's really moving. And I mean, it's this horrible irony because the whole theme song's about um, you know things happen at the right time, but this was absolutely the wrong time Aww. for for Scorch. Because think about you know in 1992, all we had was the sitcom for him. But think about like now he could have like a great Pixar treatment. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or maybe he hides in the bedroom with the little girl like he's a cat and she gives him a litter box. Or a DreamWorks cartoon or, you know, exactly. like something like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, or YouTube. Even the ventriloquism act, we've got little clips all the time that are real digestible. and It doesn't have to be like a major variety show thing. Um, I think this would have been great. We're sorry, Scorch. <laughs> it was not the right time for you. So... If I'm going to be poetic about it, I'd say I felt like I found a fossil of myself and I feel like it could still come to life. (laughs) Jess, where are you going? You gotta let him back in. No, we don't. Can't you just stay until he can fly again? I'll feed him. I'll walk him. I'll put papers under him. Jess, we can't. Mrs. Bracken, she won't let us keep a turtle, let alone a dragon. But I've always wanted a dragon. You never said that before. I don't tell you everything. Number six. You stimulate them. You make them think and scheme. You drive them to poetry, science, religion, all that makes them what they are for as long as they last. You are, so to speak, the brute existent by which they learn to define themselves. All right, at number six, I give you a literary pick. This is the dragon from Grendel, the 1971 novel by John Gardner. Okay. And you're going to be like, what is this? I'm, I'm going to enlighten you because this I've never heard of this. This is like a deep hipster. I, I know the monster. I was going to say, unless you're like an English lit student, isn't this, maybe. Uh, isn't this the Beowulf monster? Yes. 
So this book, okay, like so the the writer John Gardner, he was an American writer in the 60s and 70s. And he's somebody I would refer to as like an academic novelist, you know, like he's really was intense about his craft and very obsessive about it and was very much interested in writing like, you know, a, a novel. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, just, like, he taught at Oberlin. Uh-huh. And a lot of other places, but, like, he taught at Oberlin. Jonathan you know what I mean? Friends in the... Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, like, I, I, I think, like, very much someone who was, like, aware of his ability to create literature, okay. right? His best-known work was this 1971 book called Grendel, which is the story of, like, the epic of Beowulf, but it's told from the perspective of the monster Grendel. Okay. Okay, and he is in this story. Um, it's first person. He is like the you know the main protagonist, and he's an antihero because um, you definitely understand why Grendel does what he does, and um, it's very beautifully, very playfully written. I mean, you you can definitely tell when you're reading it. It's a maybe a little bit obnoxious, and you never forget that you're reading an academic's novel, mm-hmm. but it's still very entertaining. You know, sometimes when we try to talk about a story from the monster's perspective, it's like the monster was hurt and something bad happened, and that's why he acted out. But this one is very much more of an ontological musing because it's it's more just like here's how a monster thinks, <laughs> and this is like what's in his heart and on his mind. What and, what, um, what national is he is he British or American? The writer. Um, he's American, actually. Okay, okay. So it, it's really fascinating because it, it shows Grendel coming down from the mountain and spying on the people in the mead hall. So you, if you remember the story of Beowulf, I'm sorry, ninth grade English is calling you again. I'm sorry. But it's, it's basically there is a monster named Grendel who keeps terrorizing a mead hall. <laughs> and and, and he, he, like, kills everybody and... He's one of three antagonists in Beowulf. So it's like Grendel, Grendel's mother, and then, um, as we've mentioned earlier, the dragon is the uh-huh. big bad at the end. Just a little bit more about how Grendel is in this, in this novel. He's fascinated by the humans that he likes to terrorize, and he terrorizes them almost as an afterthought. <laughs> and he's just very, very interested in their weird lives, and he develops a particular fascination with the bards, who he calls the shapers, because of how... He can hear them taking a story that he knows, like, the events that transpired because he spies on all the kingdoms. Like, he knows how a battle actually went down. But a bard can take this thing, this factual representation of an event, and then turn it into something beautiful. And it's so beautiful that people will take up the sword and die for a Mm -hmm. king they've never even met before. So this book also becomes like a, a rumination on the power of art and then like, why are we here? And why are we who we are? And um, his mother is a character in the book. It's very well drawn and beautiful. This like very alien creature to him. And then of course, making an appearance on our list is uh, the dragon who lives in the caves with Grendel and his mother, but deeper in the caves. And the dragon is like this advisor who um, counsels Grendel on just the ways of the world. Because Grendel is really kind of wondering, like, what's, you know, what's the deal? Why do I do what I do? And he goes to talk to the dragon in a very long and, and funny scene. 
The dragon is very old and tired because he can see the past and the future all at once. And so he's very nihilistic. Like uh -huh. he has this view of the world and humanity as we're a blip in the cosmic timeline. That sounds very Alduin-like. Yes, and like nothing matters and who cares, you know? And um, Grendel goes to ask him, like, you know, what should I do with my life? Like, should I cut back on terrorizing the people at Hrothgar? Because like, what's the point? And the dragon is really, really funny about it. And when Grendel asks him, so what should I do with my life? He's basically like, do what you want to do. And I advise you to get a pile of gold and sit on it. <laughs> and that's it. Like, you just, why not? He's fun because he is such a nihilistic figure. And I do like the trope of dragons being so full of wisdom that they're just over it, uh -huh. you know? <laughs> so he's a really fun character. And I actually um, think even if, if you've not read, there's, I mean, there's nothing fun about reading Beowulf for fun. But if you'd like to sort of take a look back at that story, but from a different perspective, I think you should pick up the book. Like, they've got it. Your library definitely has it. That does sound interesting. And not everything I know is uh, from the 90s, but that reminds me, there is a Sunny Day real estate song called Grendel. And the lyrics are, I wanted to be them, but instead I destroyed myself. So I wonder, I wonder if it was based on that I'm book. I'm sure it could have been. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it was. So it's a fun, it's a fun and interesting read. And also, I'm sure your library also has the audiobook, which is 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 a fun bonus too. So check it out. That's your literary recommendation. Because this is a dragon that has a very very long speech about the pointlessness of life, and that's what we're here for. <laughs> sensation. Never had diamonds in your craw? I never had a craw. They help grind up the white fire rock when you eat it. That's limestone. A puny man word if I ever heard it. Eat. My next dragon will make you think real hard about those dinosaur fossils. This is from a movie based on a fantasy novel and a speculative evolution book. This is Gorbosh from a movie called The Flight of Dragons. Okay, I'm I, not familiar. <laughs> I think this is pretty interesting because this is one of those artistic things that was too good and people didn't deserve it. Uh, it you know what I mean? It didn't yeah. take off even though it should have. There's a lot of things like that. You know how when some yeah, you know how when something like comes out, but a real basic person who has no idea how to evaluate it has an opinion about it and gets to write like a critique about it or something. Yes, that drives me insane. Like I cannot stand to see uh, people do reviews of properties that have nothing to do with them. Uh, it has. It's like, don't worry about it. you. You don't have the tools to evaluate this. Yeah, like, it's not for you. Yeah. Like, I don't want to see, like, regular TV critics uh, review a Star Trek show or something like that. Or, um, or like, a certain RPGs or whatever. It's like, you're not looking for the same stuff I am. You don't right. know. Right. I, I'm kind of of the opinion that reviews in general need to be written like, if you like thus and so, you'll like this. If mm -hmm. you're not into thus and so, you probably won't be into this. I feel like that's basically the only thing helpful to say in a review. Uh, it, and by the way, if you want um, evidence of how horrible it is with anybody gets to have an opinion about anything, you should look at the Wikipedia article for the movie Office Space sometimes. It's a miracle this got made, and you would not believe how dumb people are. Like, it's just amazing what people thought about that movie and how we didn't even know what satire was until the year 2000, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird. 
Anyway, here's the deal with Flight of the Dragons. It's a really artsy animated fantasy about a world where magic is fading because the human world is embracing logic and science. And the good wizards agree to try and hide the magic world to protect it. But the evil red wizard, Omadon, wants to infect mankind with fear and greed, so they destroy themselves. Which is a very dragon-like act. Okay. Uh, so that's cool. Uh, so far, I'm not seeing a problem. But here's the hook. It's about <laughs> whether science and magic can coexist. And the main character is an earth scientist who gets trapped in the body of a dragon and has to learn biologically how to be a dragon. So you get all these really well-thought-out explanations for their whole physiology and behavior. Okay. And that's kind of what people remember about this because it's based on that um, speculative evolution book that I mentioned earlier of the same name. And if, if you want to know the, the main um, scientific, uh, <laughs> ersatz scientific point they try to make uh, is that dragons are like giant dirigibles uh, and they eat gems to create hydrochloric acid that would dissolve large amounts of rapidly growing bone. And this would release hydrogen to make them fly. And they expel fires to remove the excess gas. And, which I think is pretty cool. Okay. And he, um, and the guy who wrote it said he got the idea from looking at like some dragon artwork of like the classic British dragon and noticed that they were shaped like giant gas bags. Hey, how do I get down? Without belch. Yes, close the valves and expel gas to come down. Well, go ahead. Turn your head, you dummy. But again, this was another case of like bad packaging uh, because uh, it was a very artsy movie. It was very painterly, like the Lord of the Rings animated film. And they had these glimpses of the future on Earth where there are these bombs dropping, like the Pink Floyd movie, and really good voice acting. Uh, but they packaged it up like it was a clamshell Disney movie. And the cover is the artwork's not even anything like the movie. And it looks like the rescuer's down under. Or <laughs> it's got like this little uh, baby dragon swooping down with some guys on his back. It's like, what is this movie? It's what? not this so movie. What year did you say it was? I think it's 82. Okay, yeah, and, and this is just a bit before... The Lord of the Rings movie had just... And it was in 79. Okay. So so it was really weird. And also, and like the pace of it um, didn't feel like a movie script where you have to hit all these beats at a certain time. It was uh, it was almost like a um, radio drama and it had really deliberate like TV voice acting. And listen to this cast. They have Victor Bruno, who, remember, uh, we were just watching him in... Um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, that guy that we love so much. Oh, wow. And King Tut from Batman. Oh, yeah. Um, this was his last film. Um, was he the dragon? I think he was a dragon. Okay. He, it was really cool. Uh, James Earl Jones, which is just uh, crazy uh, to me that you used to be able to cast James Earl Jones and stuff like he was a regular man. Yeah, that was before <laughs> that he became like, you know, that was before he got in the sky and became just yeah. one with the... He Lion seems like King. a he seems yes he seems like a secret <laughs> character like you shouldn't be able to just normally hire <laughs> yeah, like, him. It is funny like James Earl Jones has an agent, and you can call them up and be like, "Can we get James Earl Jones?" <laughs> but I just think that you should have to summon him th from the sky. He is like a dragon. Yeah, right? you he can, is. he's not a normal thing. You can't <laughs> no, just go talk to James call, Earl Jones. You can't call him on the phone. You can't ask him to say things. You to cannot you. DM him on Instagram. Like that is not going to work. Okay. What if James Earl Jones was on like Twitter? That'd be wrong. That would be wrong. Like, you can't. You can't do that. No. Uh, also, John Ritter, I think, is the main scientist guy. Okay. okay. He was really good at that. Um, and the. Uh, Alexandra Stoddart from um, the Pride of the X-Men movie. I thought that was, was kind of funny. 
Um, but anyway, I don't have too much to say about this, except that um, I love this speculative fiction stuff. And like his explanations are exactly like how you used to write scientific papers in the 1800s. Like he could have written this down and, and they would have interviewed him like, like a scientist. <laughs> they would have been like, that's exactly correct. Right. <laughs> Men live in trenches on Mars. Tell me I'm wrong. I do love the idea that if you make up a good enough, plausible enough sounding story, people would just run with it. That's actually terrible. That's not how <laughs> the world should work, but I, I kind of love that. <laughs> I want to be a dragon scientist. Compartments we can expand and contract. And when we expand the hydrogen... I, I mean, a uh, uh, dragon fire. Number four! All right, we all knew this was coming. I give you, at number four, Granamir, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. <laughs> he really is one of the best ones. Yeah, right. So if you listened to our Masters of the Universe review podcast, you definitely heard how fond we were of Granamir, even though he doesn't show up very much in the show. And I went back and looked like um, one of his big episodes we covered in a lightning round. So like we didn't, I mean, I don't know that we even appreciated what a good character he was until we finally got to his second big appearance. I think mm-hmm. it was like his third I like appearance. how they had these little pockets or clusters of episode that were their own little contained world. Like yeah. I think they called those like the, what the, the dark smoke episodes. Cause that's where he lived or something. Yeah. Yeah. So he, um, about Grandamere, he lives in dark smoke, which is a citadel in the ice mountains in the Northern part of Eternia. And he's over 10,000 years old. I will listen to what you have to say. My friend Man-at-Arms has been turned into a crystal statue by evil magic. I'm told you might know how to undo the spell. Might? Am I not the wisest creature on all Eternia? Do I not know magics that were forgotten before humankind ever walked this world? Then you can reverse the magic? Of course I can. It's poor magic at best, but I see no reason to trouble myself over a single human. It has been a thousand years since I last spoke with humans. I found them vain, greedy, warlike, untruthful, and quite ugly. So he shows up on Shira in an episode called Dark Smoke and Fire, which I don't think we reviewed. Um, but if you want to hear us talk about that on the Wizard's Night shirt, that was when we covered the Dragon's Gift, which was Larry Dottilio's best episode he's ever written, according to him. Uh-huh. And then on the Wizard's Night shirt, if you're checking back in our older episodes, you should check out episode 81. Uh, that's the episode, The Return of Granamere. So okay. anyway, if you're interested in taking a little trip down memory lane, we did love Granamere back in the day. So Granamere is from the times when humans on Eternia and dragons were fought. And then they ended the war and dragons agreed to go to Dark Smoke and kind of mind their own business. So we have Granamere. They barged into my home. They begged for my help. And when I gave it, they never appreciated it. Now, Granamere is everything I want and need in a dragon, which is he's old, he's wise, and he's sick of everybody. Mm-hmm. His character design is really cool, and he was one of the most memorable, I think, minor recurring characters. Like, he's one that everybody always wants toys of, uh-huh. even to this day. Um, he usually appears in his little dragon cubby hole, <laughs> and he's kind of sitting up. He's magenta, he's got small little wings and a helmet with horns, and the thing that we loved about him was that um, his upper body looked wizened and, like, thin, kind of like T-Rex arms a little bit, like he was old. Yeah, he had, like, a like a uh, older man's, like, um, little apple belly, like, yeah. um, pot belly. 
And he has a very soft and refined voice because, again, he's old and he's over it. All right, so we find that he is also very much a smart aleck because he's disdainful of humans, although eventually, you know, he comes around to He-Man. He likes He-Man, <laughs> and he likes She-Ra, too, but everybody else can just go take a hike. And and, and uh, Man-at-Arms just pretty much works with him. We're seeing the dragon. <laughs> the dragon, <laughs> He-Man. I forgot about how Man-at-Arms was, like, so fat. Like, Man-at-Arms just loved the dragon. <laughs> Man at Arms was just really, really into it. I, God, I forgot about that. That's be, funny. Be more dragon-like, Tila. <laughs> it's not very dragon. She, she was a bird, not a dragon. Oh, man, that was funny. Episode 81, you should check it out, uh, of our Motu podcast. But basically, I just want to put Grandamir in here because he is what I want in a dragon. He's living the dragon dream. So if you were not were going to be a dragon, just sitting in your dragon hole, chilling, you got some treasure you know, you're wise and people are going to come consult with you um, and you'll deign to help them with their stupid problems. I, I would like a dragon consultation business would be pretty, pretty funny. It would be. It's like a life coach. He should have like a little YouTube channel. Yes. And it'd be so funny because his questions, like he would just be like rolling his eyes the whole time because he's answered them all a million times from everyone. And he's like one typewriter away from you. Have, being, you have your ready. answer. He's told you by his actions. He doesn't care for you. Exactly. That would be hilarious. <laughs> Like the dragon advice column or the dragon talk show where it's like a dragon Dr. Phil. Like, how's that working for you? I Who's mean, the common denominator in this problem? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's what I love is the wise counseling dragon who kind of thinks you're an idiot. Uh-huh. And that's, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good dragon. <laughs> but he's nice to you. Like he likes you okay. He just thinks you're dumb. Because uh-huh. you are dumb. We're all dumb. We're all very dumb. It's okay. Oh, I get it. Number three. Okay, I'm going to tell you about a thing you may not know about, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it because it's interesting. This is the blue dragon from the old Nintendo game Dragon Spirit, the new legend. Okay, so it's interesting, though. Yes. You had to reassure me of that before yes. you said anything. That, you that be makes like, me what? Feel- it has to do with, has to do with Nintendo. Nope. Okay. okay. I've not heard of this game, no. Well, the reason I wanted to talk about it, it was a game from 1989, is because it really freaked me out when I was younger. I was not prepared for what was going to happen. Um, do you remember any old NES games that used to scare you a little bit? Oh, yeah. Uh, Castlevania 2 mm-hmm. was terrifying, but in a really fun way. And I never played it when I was a kid, but we would watch my cousin play it. Uh-huh. And I do remember when you get to Dracula's Castle and like we're playing on this little freaking 14 inch TV to also remember when you get there and Dracula takes up like most of the screen. Uh huh. That was like very scary and fun. Well, he's that used, fun. he's used to good effect like a dragon like that. There's been nothing else so far in that game of that scale. Exactly. You haven't seen anything, anything like that before. And I'm glad you mentioned the size of the TV too, because I feel like there is something, um, pretty scary about how uh, minimalist it is because there are all these little corners of the world and of the game that you can't see you don't know what's going to happen there's so much unknown and especially in an era before internet where you can't know what's going to happen or when you were younger and we weren't like super video game literate it was really scary because you don't know what's going to happen you don't know how fragile you are you know yeah so so it's, it's pretty cool 
Nintendo used to do a lot of this minimalist stuff where they do a little with a lot to be very creative. And it was this really cool thing they did with this game where you start off as the blue dragon and you fight uh, like a final boss from the past, like the, dra the game that came before it in the arcades. And that's the first level. And the story changes if you die in that first level. So if you lost your fight in that first level with the big boss, the game starts over and there's a new prologue. And instead of being the blue dragon, you have to play as the king's son who turns into a gold dragon, which I think was pretty cool. Yeah, no, that that's a... Uh, that's Such so... a small, easy thing to program that meant so much. Yeah, that is really interesting because we also... I, I know that choices are a big deal in video games, but it's like these days, but are they really though? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I feel like they don't ever want to give you a super different experience. It's just mostly like... What's a different cutscene we can show at the end? Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. Like it is, I, it, it is very charming the way it used to be done. Yeah, it was so simple. But I wanted to know. Well, what was the deal with the blue dragon? What would it happen if I had one as a blue dragon? Can we fix it? And also, there's the weight of a whole um, family uh, history and um, the history of the world depending on what you did in that level. I mean, there's so much weight on you dying as that dragon. I thought it was, I thought it was a stupid little gimmick that they put in this arcade shooter. Um, and I, I thought this was just a really fun way to think about dragons because if you want them to be a big deal, less is more, which is some of the some of what we've been talking about. And in this case, you don't know much about the dragons, how you transform into to them, um, how the story would play out differently because we didn't have the internet. And speaking of minimalist stuff, also uh, the prologue and all this, can I just say, I think the world is really missing something from... Um, not having as much white text on black background. You know what I mean? <laughs> that is, a, There is a good kind of satisfying look to that. And yeah. I, I don't know that that's necessarily just nostalgia talking either because there's like this void behind it. You know what I mean? There's something, there's like a darkness and what is unexplored there. And when all you're seeing is this white text, anything could be behind it. It could be a supercomputer. It could be the dumbest computer in the world. You could be launching missiles, um, you know what I mean? Anything could be be behind that. I, there's just something about the minimalism of the of the black void and the and the white text on top of it. I, I think uh, lends a lot to fantasy stories. And speaking of the prologue, the last thing I was going to say about this because it is just a little arcade shooter game. At the end of the story, is uh, the real ending happens only if you survived that uh, first battle as and finished as the blue dragon. If you win as the gold dragon, there is the quote bad ending that's like a joke ending and it seems like very Japanese cute because you wake up from a nightmare and you see like this image of uh, the uh, blue dragon with a uh, collar and leash and then they pan over to show who's holding it and it's your little sister like dragging you around with it and you were having a nightmare <laughs> that uh, you were her pet dragon <laughs> which is so crazy it's just like so rude <laughs> it was very funny that is funny and if you do win it's just a very uh, rote thing about a new legend is written and all that stuff yeah so I do love how the Japanese developers in a lot of those early Nintendo games were like we're not gonna like we're not gonna overhype your ending like you're just gonna be like you, well done you yes. know like like or they are they're not gonna praise you excessively yeah you don't get the uh you don't get the uh skyrim treatment I was, you, get yeah, hyped you, don't, up. you don't get the dragonborn treatment <laughs> yeah. number two now shall you deal with me oh prince and all the powers of hell <laughs> 
at number two this is a good one i give you maleficent from the 1959 disney animated film oh she turns into a dragon yeah that was a good one also i don't hate the 2014 film but that's not what we're talking uh-huh. about i just i want to talk about our classic turn it into a dragon awesome moment your mom didn't like the new film because the bad guy was kind of the hero in it she doesn't like when that happens she doesn't like my mom does not like nuance in films no. she never has good guys win or that the, uh, the experience of watching the film uh, lady, lady killers. killers with tom hanks mom could not wrap her head around tom hanks being the devil or being a bad guy like yeah. she's because she could not she would like not it's tom compute. hanks he's the charming one why is he why is he bad why did he die it was <laughs> she very didn't funny want him to die <laughs> oh no yeah no, she, she did not like that. Um, and of course, we can talk a little bit about giving, you know, giving our monsters nuance, which is something we like to do mm-hmm. today. But I'm really talking about the OG Maleficent, who transforms at the pivotal battle into a giant purple and black dragon who breathes green fire. And because this is original Disney animation, of course, it's hand-drawn, and it's beautiful. Like, if you look at it like an art nerd, like, the color palette is gorgeous in the battle. I, I remember watching some little Disney special where they were talking to one of the original animators, and the one, this woman they were talking to, she talked about doing the illustrations or the inking or something for Maleficent. She said she'd go home, and her fingertips just couldn't get the ink off of them because there's so much black. Which that's awesome. Yeah, I love that. I love that, and I I do love that that beautiful hand animation. Like I, you know, there's just a, a lot of it's very liquid and flowing. It is, and it, like because it was literally liquid. Like you know, it's really. Um, I, I I do really have a fondness for that, even though I know we've discussed that we're not super big Disney people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about why that is, and of course, uh, Maleficent is often voted number one Disney villain of all time because of the dragon transformation, I think. And she's in like the Kingdom Hearts games and stuff. Uh So earlier on the show, we were kind of saying that we don't really care for Disney because I say we, but it was me talking, but you agree (laughs) (laughs) that that we don't really care for Disney because they want to have it both ways. Right. Cause Uh like they want to show you the good and true and pure of heart story. But then they make the villains more interesting because let's think about the film Sleeping Beauty. Aurora, boring. Uh The prince, boring. The three little fairy ladies, boring. Everybody is boring and sucks in that movie except for Maleficent. Mm -hmm. She's the only one with any star power. Disney princesses, who wants to be Sleeping Beauty? Nobody. She's the worst one. She's very, very dumb. (laughs) And so I get annoyed with Disney for wanting to have it both ways. Because either your story needs to be that our charismatic bad guy has reasons for what they do. um, Or the good guys need to be interesting. Because you're not making being good look appealing. Uh You're just like, like, I'm watching this and I want to transform into a dragon, okay? Like, I don't want to be Aurora asleep while some dude tries to come save me boring it's boring 
I guess, I don't know. Phil- <laughs> Rebecca, representative for the Disney Super Villains Committee. Right. Uh, your, your time is up. Well, like, it's it's actually, this. I think this actually speaks to a very dumb, fragile thing about humans. It's how susceptible we are to, I'm not even going to call it charm. I'm just going to call it passion. Mm-hmm. Whenever we see uncontrolled id, there is a part of us that really wants to just respond to that. That's so true. And you know, you know what I'm thinking of exactly. Remember, we were watching that uh, that wrestling show, Dark Side of the Ring. Um, a great show. Okay, so a lot of those episodes have two sides of the story. Where on one side they're talking to the old wrestling manager Jim Cornette, and on the other side they're talking to like his arch nemesis. I can't even remember. Is it Tony Schiavone? Who's his Vince Russo? Vince Russo. Yeah, yeah his arch nemesis Vince Russo, and I. I never even had an opinion, but I always agree with Jim Cornette because he is the most passionate, <laughs> and he, he he's about to cry. He is so mad or so in love with what he is saying, and so I love him like a Disney supervillain. Well, yeah, and and, and his you tennis know, racket, and he is complicated because yeah, Jim Cornette is a very charismatic <laughs> dude, a complicated figure in wrestling history, but also yes. just like a like a guy you can't help. But By like. the way. Uh, Bret Hart is probably my favorite wrestler. Um, after watching the Dark Side of the Ring about the Montreal screw job, where Bret Hart is still mad about, um, Jim Cornette admitted to doing it, and I kind of understood it. That's how great Jim That's, Cornette well, yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. He's see, and he is. That is. It is hilarious. Jim Cornette is so likable. Okay. Oh, my God. Guys, watch Dark Side of the Ring if you hadn't. Even if you don't really care about wrestling, they're very great, well-told stories. Yeah. And if you're a lady and you're kind of into the true crime yes. genre, you'll actually really, really like it because there are a lot of crimes. And they, they spend a lot of time about. talking to the families and yes. like wives and sisters. And So if that's one of your interests, don't sleep on Dark Side of the Ring, even if you're not a wrestling fan. Like it, It's a really fascinating series. Okay, so Maleficent's the Jim Cornette of says, Disney. Yeah, so Maleficent is Disney's Jim Cornette. Yes. And... Uh, Okay. Anyway, I just 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 to wrap it up, I guess. Um, <clears throat> as humans, we're very frail and fragile and dumb, as I've already said, and we want to believe that we're always going to side with principle or rightness, but we just can't resist this sometimes evil that has charm in it. And this is just a, a big fragile. This is like a a real blind spot we need to look out uh-huh. for as humans. Um, but we're, we're, we're Anakin's. We're Anakin Skywalkers. We, we are, and like just that unbridled id, that that part of your not not the part of your ego that's just limiting you and holding you back, but like like the part that your ego is suppressing and maybe needs to because it's too wild. Yeah, it it's wants to be. Hot. It wants to be an agent. In every capacity. Yes, and we can't let that happen. So that's why I feel like the best dragon stories are those where we have an uncomfortable truce with this with this dragon because it's supposed to be something big, scary, unbridled, inner nature, scorn, hurt. Like there's there's supposed to be these really really massive feelings that we need to examine sometimes, but keep it a distance. Mm-hmm. And that is why I think it's important that we treat dragon characters in that way but Maleficent is a great one because again that is pure scorn pure hurt and anger just like and that's why it's so great because we want to believe who's the most passionate but remember children who's the most passionate and who's the most charismatic is not necessarily the most correct yes 
even if Jim Cornette probably was right about <laughs> yeah. the Montreal screw job. We're, we're not talking about him. We're talking about other people. <laughs> you have to learn how to how to master your passion like the good Jedi. Exactly. Before we name our top dragon, we feel compelled to list some honorable mentions. Honorable mentions. Mine are all on my list. I don't have any. Oh, wow. No, seriously. I mean, you hit, okay. I did, well, I did. All right. I'm going to go down my list. Okay. You have to respond to mine. Okay, I will. That's okay. fine. Fin Fang Foom, who's Marble's dragon with, who wears shorts. Yes. Uh, Liu Kang's animality, uh, where he turns into a dragon and eats you. Okay. For Mortal Kombat. <laughs> fine. Well, this could be a Mortal Kombat uh, podcast. I'm surprised it hadn't come up more often. Um, the dragons from uh, Dragon Riders of Pern, the okay. fantasy series. Fine. And finally, I have. Four Eyes, uh, the dragon from the comic about uh, the mafia that runs illegal dragon fights. Oh, okay. I mean, I was going to be like, should we mention Daenerys's dragons from Game of Thrones? But I was like, nah. <laughs> we know that's there. I mean, we know that that's there. Right. And then again, I've already told you, I think it's very much a poochie move to be like, like, but I have the powers of the dragons. I can harness the power of the dragons. The dragons understand me. I'm the president and I'm beautiful. Like, I mean, you know, like I'm, uh-huh. Yeah. I'm the queen and I'm beautiful. I'm blonde headed and I'm got the power of dragons. And also I'm crazy, but then also I'm cool. But then also I'm not, but then I, you know, like it's just calm down, just calm down. So we also like intelligent dragons too. Yes. Like, like, like ones that aren't uh, like animalistic. Yeah. Or, I'm not into that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's right too. Dragons that's, smarter than you. Okay. They all yes, are. Yes. Again, you're dumb. Not just you. We're, we're, we're all like man at arms. Like dragons are superior. Exactly. They are. They're, they are what a magnificent we, creature. Humans live by their graces. <laughs> yes. All right, so ask me who's my number one of all so time. So who's your number one dragon who lets us live by their good graces? Number one. of the civilized races. I have not tasted such sweet meats for an age. Okay, sometimes, you know, I don't care about what's really the number one. I just pretty much uh, put these in the order I think of it or the order I'd like to hear them. But this is one where the number one is definitely the number one, okay? Okay. This is the Apex Dragon, the scariest one from the foundational dragon text. This is the Evil Red Dragon from Dungeons & Dragons. Okay, there we go. So we know so we know what we're dealing with. Let's look at some traits of the red dragon so we can get into it. Okay. okay. Also, it's called Dungeons and Dragons. I figure dragons are maybe kind of a big deal yes, in there. Yes, and this is this is the most evilest, biggest bad. That okay. this is the big bad. Unless you're talking about like a unique character. These this is okay. this is the one. Okay, let's okay. have it. Uh, they have they're about fifty feet long with swept back horns. Uh, and also your treasure thing you're talking about, this comes into play here. And this is so funny to me because it seems so unnecessary for dragons to be into treasure. Like, what are they going to do with that money? <laughs> you know <laughs> I, what I mean? I don't know. It's an unnecessary risk to be that obsessive about something because you're just asking to be in a fable and be tricked by a villager or something if you're into money like that. Only if you're a dumb dragon. I guess, I guess that's Can true. Can you be tricked? Uh, but specifically, uh, dread dragons have an eye for value and can determine the monetary worth of any object at a glance. So they're like great at pawn shops. I think that's pretty funny. Okay. Um, and the gaining and keeping of treasure is the focus of their adult life, and they tend to amass incredible hordes. 
Um, and at any moment, they can tell you to the penny uh, what what their worth is, which I think is hilarious. I like that. <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm I'm like that with um pills. I'm pretty good at pouring out the exact amount just real quick. I can I can do it pretty good. Are you are you pretty, getting pretty good at that? I don't I don't know. Like I try. <laughs> I test myself. I try to. Get, I don't do a bunch of pills at once. I don't, Will has a pill container that's changed his life. I and love it. And he's always doling out his pills, but I'm, I just take them when I need them. I just, just grab so them. so orderly. I like it. I'm, I'm um, happy for They live you. in volcanoes. Yes. And, uh, usually, like, there's a, a narrow tunnel that drops into a pool, and um, there's these little corridors that go into different rooms for different functions, which I think is very organized, and I like that, too. Um, they'll spend years designing battle strategies. Um, and sometimes there's, like, uh, there's uh, female ones, which uh, you forget about, but they put those in... Uh, the Neverwinter Nights game to good effect. I think that was pretty cool. Of course, of course, I will relish the challenge. I guess the interesting thing I wanted to talk about here was why I feel so connected to these dragons and why I know so much about them. And that's because my friend and I, uh, when we were growing up, were the only kids in our town who I think even knew what Dungeons and Dragons was. Mm -hmm. And we were very young when we played it. So we played it and wrote stories to the best of our ability and just made it work because we didn't get taught by anybody. We could, you know, we understood the game system as much as we could. But here was the thing. I was the dungeon master and so I wrote the stories and I was about nine or 10. So it was very hit or miss. <laughs> okay. I bet it was good. Okay. Um, sometimes we had great campaigns and sometimes they were bad. And because you don't know how to talk to each other when you're nine or 10, you know, like he would get mad at me. Like if it wasn't a good one and we yell at each other and we had to, yeah, that sounds like, about right. It's so funny. And now is this the little thing? Didn't your sister print y'all out like a banner on computer paper about yeah. like the, the adventure club? Don't you have Yes. That? Josh's sister made, oh, made Josh, one. It was, it it was, was on Ashley. the, on the okay. dot matrix printer. Like, yeah. Okay. It was like comic book club. And we would, we would play Dungeons and Dragons in there. That's very sweet. Um, and I think it was hit or miss because I didn't understand that all good campaigns are based on monster encounters. That's such an easy way to frame it. But I didn't know that. So a lot of times I'd try to write, I'd, <laughs> I'd try to grasp for something that was beyond me. I'd be trying to write Star Trek scripts, right? Where the conflicts were a little abstract. <laughs> You're like, the Admiral's here and I don't like the way she yeah, does things. Yeah, the Admiral's <laughs> mad at you, Josh. I don't care. Where are the Hobgoblins? <laughs> So for me, and this is where I'm going to, this is where I'm going to tie about the dragon thing. For me, it was like I was fighting a personal dragon because even if it sucked and I couldn't ever quite figure it out, I go back every day and try again. And this is just so poetic to me because I think of this, these stories while I was going on a little journey to his house every day because it was just far away enough my parents wouldn't drive me, but it was a pretty good hike, especially to carry this duffel bag full of all our Dungeons and Dragons books, like I was a, a little scholar or something. <laughs> um, and I had these and I had Aww. these trials because about halfway through the journey, I had to sneak through this mean neighbor's house who told me I couldn't do it because I had to go through the woods and cross the creek to get to his house and I would have to hide in their bushes if they were doing uh, yard work or sneak through their trees and I'd have to get past them if they saw me like oh don't be coming back here don't come through here and I would I would try to get through them every single day that is terrible <laughs> like the cat trying to get to the Christmas tree yes um and then one time I fell in the creek with all my books and that is why our monstrous manual on our bookshelf is kind of wavy because yeah. that's where it came from. It got that's sodden like that. Very sad and beautiful. <laughs> so anyway, 
the Red Dragon is the highlight of the Monstrous Manual, and uh, it's from that book that I dropped in the creek. It's the best dragon uh, is number one. And it does represent your self-limiting beliefs and obstacles you must personally overcome. Yes, and I, I, I will still show up to fight it. That's lovely. That's just lovely. I think we covered the hell out of some dragons. Yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> and we didn't even like mention half of the dragons or one. I mean, there's so much we didn't cover, but I feel like this really, we really got at the heart of it. I think, I think so too. And you know, I have to have a little summary at the end because when you do your checkpoint test, you have to pass it. I personally like that early civilizations weren't really wrong about dragons. They did exist. They were dinosaurs. To them, if you showed them a dinosaur, I think, and you said, dragons weren't real. This is a dinosaur. I think they'd be like, uh, we're quibbling a bit, right? Because <laughs> that is a that is a dragon and it's horrible. <laughs> and I love that dragons really existed. It's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> Me too. And I think that a dragon is not something that you can like be the boss of. Yes, it's not something to be that. presented lightly. Less is more. They're a big deal, and they're very important. And show respect to a dragon. Exactly. Well, if you have thoughts about this list or your own suggestions, email us at rumors at thewizardsnightshirt.com or hit us up on social media, and we might share some of your thoughts on the next episode. Rebecca, where can people follow us? You can find us on Twitter or Instagram. Or you can visit thewizardsnightshirt.com to find out about this show and our other shows like Curdle Holler, our original Halloween comedy series, as well as a complete archive of our Masters of the Universe review show. Episode 81. Check out the return of Granamir. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week when we call forth new champions. The legends they tell of a hero Facing down fears and cutting down foes There's no resemblance to what you know When your own deeds feel humble and fear